Welcome to Green Tea, sustainable stories from Bowdoin's campus and beyond. My name is Holden Turner. And I'm Juliette Min. Green Tea is a production of the Office of Sustainability at Bowdoin College, sharing the perspectives of students, staff, and community members. We're here with Dr. Stefan Gary. So uh, Stefan, could you introduce yourself and your role at Bowdoin? Hi. Yeah, my name is Stefan Gary, and I'm a visiting assistant professor at Bowdoin. I joined uh, in the spring semester of 2020. So I was on campus for seven weeks, and then all of a sudden everything changed. Um, and my experience at Bowdoin has actually been more remote than, than in person, but it's, it's, been a, it's been a wonderful experience. And uh, so my particular role is I've been teaching, I'm an oceanographer, and I taught uh, a couple of courses that I developed specifically for, the, for this role, uh, a course on fluid dynamics, a course on ocean carbon climate solutions. And then I also taught uh, courses that already exist at Bowdoin. So for example, oceans and climate. And then this semester I'm teaching uh, the, in, the uh, oceanography class. Wow, that sounds like a lot of classes, really interesting classes that you're teaching right now. Um, can you share really quickly what you what got you into oceanography and yeah? Oh sure, yeah. Uh, so I, I trained originally as uh, an engineer and an art historian. Those are my that's my my undergraduate background, oh. uh, and I wanted to do architecture and like uh, restoration of old buildings and and um, and and that's I had no idea that earth science existed as a field. I'd never taken any kind of earth science course at all, whether in high school or in college. And, uh, and then I, I went in, I joined the Peace Corps and I, I taught in, uh, in Tanzania for, for two years. And it was in teaching there uh, that I had to teach a, a section on geophysics uh, to my students. And I was like, what, you know, I was, I was completely amazed. It opened up whole new, you know, the, the whole experience of, uh, you know, the whole experience opened up new doors to me. And I, I think it must've been a combination of being in a, in a completely new place where all of a sudden I have to be really mindful of, of everything about my life in a way that it was completely different from, from where I grew up in the Chicago suburbs. Um, mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, things like, I know, I know exactly where my food was coming from. I had to be careful about where my water was coming from. I had to be really careful about, uh, about, uh, waste. Like there's no magic trash pickup service there. Um, and so, you know, so the, so it really kind of opened up my uh, environmental awaken, uh, awareness, but at the same time, uh, yeah, I was teaching about geophysics and, and, and I was like, wow, the equations that I learned in engineering, like for beam bending can apply to the crust of the earth. It's exactly the same equation, except that instead of a couple tens of meters, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of kilometers. And, and, and it just, I don't, it just totally inspired me to think on a large scale like that. Really cool. So you then went back to school, I'd imagine, to learn the more formal basics of oceanography. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I was really lucky um, because I had a I'd applied to graduate school at the same time as I applied for Peace Corps, and then I deferred my admission to graduate school. And at the time, they said, "Oh, he's he's never going to show up." You know, they almost, they almost never. You know, students almost never show up when they defer admission. But but I did, and and it was really convenient because it would have been very difficult for me to apply to graduate school from Tanzania. So I had it kind of like, it was kind of lined up and ready to go. Um, and it, there was an engineering program, but I ended up doing a lot of fluid dynamics there. And so 
walking in with inspiration and being exposed to the fluid dynamics, that's, and that, and that laid the foundation then for, for going into an oceanography program. But that was only when I started my PhD. Uh, I did, you know, I did this master's sort of as an intermediate place to kind of look around. And then it was jumping into oceanography right from at the PhD level. Can you tell us more about your time at the Peace Corps and what made you want to do that? Oh, sure. Well, I really enjoyed teaching and, and working with, with my peers. And, and so I, I, when, when, I, when I reached out to the Peace Corps and asked about what kind of roles would work well for, for you know, with someone with my interests, they, they indicated that a lot, there was a lot of teaching roles out there. And I thought, oh, this would be a great opportunity to, 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 to see what it's like but also to really expand my horizons. And then, and also, you know, a big part of Peace Corps is bringing, the, bringing it back uh, to the US and bringing those experiences back. Um, and so, so yeah, so I thought, oh, this sounds, this sounds great. I didn't, didn't really quite know what else I was going to do. And, and it was amazing because it really helped cement, uh, yeah, I wasn't aware at the time, but it really helped bring out a whole, open up a whole new door for where I would go. The oceanography course that you're teaching right now, you are also teaching to first year students or students who have never had experience in the EOS department before. So what is that like? And do you love interacting with uh, people just getting into their sciences? Oh, absolutely. It's a ton of fun. Yeah, because we get uh, there's a lot of really good questions in class. And 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 it's also really it's really fun for me to revisit things that I've glossed over. Um, and, and so, for example, we were talking about tides a couple of weeks ago, and I realized that in my whole professional career as an oceanographer, I basically have been removing tides from data and never looking at them. And here it's like, well, we, have, we have a whole section on tides. Oh, well, how, how do they work? Huh, that's really cool. Um, so so it, was, it was a lot of fun to, to, to you know, it, it really, it gives me pause and, and, I, and I've been really enjoying uh, that that kind of that kind of thinking again of, of everything. It's really wonderful to hear. Um, your course this semester, oceanography, it includes a lot of field work and a lot of labs that uh, take place around the Casco Bay and in the Gulf of Maine. And it seems like with COVID nineteen going around, it's hard for these students who are just getting into the sciences who are in your course to really get involved in that field work. Um, how are you finding ways around it and, you know, doing it in a way that is engaging and interesting for the students now? Oh, absolutely. That's a great question. Yeah. Oceanography, you know, there are a lot, a lot I, know, I know, I know a lot of students are really excited about the field work component and going out on a boat. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's impossible to do social distancing on, on, on a, on the kind of boat that we would go out for a day on. I mean, it's, I mean, everybody's packed on the deck. Um, and so, so to, to, to kind of change that a little bit. Uh, what what we just what we try to do is to well two 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 things uh, the first one uh, was I have experience with ocean robots uh, from my my previous job I, I used to work in in Scotland and run an uh, run part of an ocean uh, an ocean observing program where in the summertime we go out and ship great weather well okay weather um, and then in the winter it it's impossible to work on a ship. And so we would uh, send a robot out and it would very, you know, it would, it would go from Scotland to Iceland in about six months time. Uh, but, you know, it's going fully, um, but it, it's doing its thing and, and we would collect data from it. And, and so that program has continued. And so I conferred with my colleagues and they were open to, 
to to bar to sharing the the near real time data. So every six hours it comes up. It says, "Oh, I've got new data," and 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 so the idea is to then share that data uh, with the students uh, as part of a as part of a project. So we started off with a little bit of of that at the very beginning of class, um, and then. Uh, and then and then now in about a week's time we're going to start sort of a more formal project where they're going to look at the data that's been collected over the semester and then uh and look at at how uh, at the timing of the the spring bloom in the ocean when all the when all the photosynthesis starts to really ramp up uh look at that relative to the subsurface properties in that location that's it, it it's it's not the same as going to sea but they are seeing the ocean from exactly the same perspective that a sea glider pilot would see it. Um, so it, it's, it's, you know, it's pretty cool. Um, Fantastic. I hadn't known that ocean robots existed before right now. Are they big? Are they, or like, I'm, I imagine kind of like a sub, a small submersible that then has lots of sensors on it. Yeah. Yeah. There's whole, a whole almost an ecosystem of them in the sense that there's lots of different kinds for different kinds of missions so some of them have propellers they have little batteries that drive motors but they're only good for say six to 12 hours at a time because it's a huge energy drain and the batteries can only be so big then there's other ones like the this this this, uh, this glider that we were talking about that can stay in the water for a long time because it what it does is it it, it shrinks itself to sink and then it expands itself to rise and then inside it, it's moving its its battery pack around back and forth, so that it actually changes the pitch of the robot as as it as it goes up and down. Um, and so it can it can form instead of just going straight up and down in the water, it can actually glide in sort of this W extended W pattern. Cool. Um, and then there's other robots too, like there's uh, there's robots that use the waves to make to propel them around. There's robots with sails that can that can that are like tiny little sailboats. That are automated. Um, there's uh, ships with their little, you know, tiny boats with propellers on them that can go for 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 for. for uh, I'm not exactly certain how long they can be deployed, but but yeah, there's so there's a whole whole array of different kinds of things and sensors that can be attached to them. Very cool. I'll also, talk to you about um, the Kibbe lecture with Dr. Ayan Elizabeth Johnson. So a lot yeah. of the science and policy courses. I am in two US courses right now, and both of those very much encouraged us to turn in, tune in to, uh, to the talk. What, what did you take away? What struck you from uh, the conversation that you moderated with her? And what about your, her work have you brought into the oceanography? Uh, oh, absolutely. Um, so, uh, well, I started bringing, I brought her work first into uh, class uh, last semester uh, when I was teaching oceans and climate and ocean carbon climate solutions, because it is so easy to start when, when one starts thinking about climate, it's easy to get lost in the big scale and, and not think about how it's actually impacting people. And, 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 and so I really wanted to bring that out and, and, and to talk about like this, you know, both in terms of the inequities of the impacts of climate change, but also the inequities of the potential impacts of potential fixes to climate change, right? So there, there's, you know, huge concepts to talk about. And, and so there, in that case, one of the things that we, one of the, uh, Ayana's work that I first brought into class was her Washington Post uh, article on how racism derails uh, our, our, uh, it's the, the fight against climate change. And because I, I, I thought it was a very powerful piece in, in, in real, in, 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 in describing the inequities of, 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 of climate, but also in, in the perspectives of how to fix climate. Um, 
So, uh, but more to this semester um, in oceanography, uh, I brought, for example, uh, in, in uh, Yana's PhD work, she discussed the differences in perspectives between uh, fishers and divers on a reef. And I thought that was a great way to start the class because it shows two groups of people have very different perspectives of the ocean. You know, the same, they're in the same patch of ocean, right? But they have very different perspectives of it, not just because you know, not just because of their roles, but also like things like uh, the shifting baselines. So for the example, the fishers could tell that over time they perceived a much bigger change in the in the reef ecosystem and like greater, but the divers hadn't necessarily seen that as much. Um, and whereas the and, the, and the fishers didn't see themselves as part of the problem, and, but, the, but the divers kind of thought that the fishers potentially were. So like, there was very different perspectives on the same situation. And I thought that was a good way to sort of think about as a first step, like, how are you, how are, how are the students, how are you tied to the ocean, right? And like, and, and as by showing different folks have different perspectives. So that was our first step. Um, and we also brought in, uh, there's a really cool uh, uh, in, our, in our podcast and also in All We Can Save, there's a there's a segment on uh, uh, how uh, if it's if, if sea level is rising in Miami, why is construction booming? And so we were talking about ocean water properties and how when water gets heated, it expands. And so that that's the one of the, the sort of the the ocean the the physical oceanography background. But then on the other side, there's there's real world societal impacts that are that are related to that physical concept. And there's a there's a there's a mismatch between between what people are doing and in their cities and, and what's what's happening in the ocean. Um, so that's that's another way we uh, we brought our work into the classroom. Fantastic. I had discussions in my class about her broader climates, her broader perspectives on climate solutions, as well as just the the way she's able to communicate science very well. She's an excellent communicator. Oh absolutely. Oh and I didn't answer your question as to like what I what I walked away with. I think for and also something I wanted to, you know, share with my class is that uh, I've really, one of the, the quote that I have in my mind that's, that's stuck the most is um, uh, something about when she's addressing scientists, right? Because it, it really, because I'm, I'm a scientist and I'm thinking about, well, what am I doing with my career, right? And one of the things she said is, is she said, it, it's not the time for the easy A and, and the, the easy elective class. It's time to like, to really do some real work and, and to like take some risks in order to get there. And so oftentimes I think about the sort of, you know, if I could, the easy A for me would be to keep publishing on my exact narrow specialty and just keep going there. And whereas, so, so now it's like the challenge that I'm taking on and I, I want to include with in my work is to, is to broaden and think about, well, where, what can I do that's like, that's really impactful with, with these huge challenges. So, um, so that I found to be a really, uh, really inspiring thing because she's, you know, it's again, the, this thought about, yes, what can we do? Like, let's start saying yes to things. And, and so that was a really nice thing to bring out those ocean carbon, uh, uh, ocean solutions uh, that, that were discussed in, in the meeting as well, which are, which are you know, it's, it's inspiring to talk about what we can aspire to and what we can, what, what we can do to help solve things. Yeah, that's very beautiful to be able to take uh, people who study science and exhort them to see um, how interconnected it is or their study is to um, all the other social and economic 
implications that are out there in the world too. And it's, it's, yeah, it's very beautiful to see how, you know, scientists are being uh, encouraged to see how their work can um, contribute to this uh, ongoing dialogue um, about how to make things better. So that's, that's really great to hear. Um, so I'm an econ major and I don't really know too much about this subject. And so for those who don't really have the same background, <laughs> kind of like me, um, can you quickly explain why it is that we model the ocean, why that's helpful for um, climate solutions and all the other um, aspects that we have we had just covered in the previous question? Sure, sure. Um, so, uh, so an ocean model is is basically uh, imagine the whole global ocean divided into a series of grid cells, and inside those grid cells you have a, a value for temperature, salinity, currents, a bunch of other stuff, um, and all of those grid cells are related to each other through through uh, equations based on physics, right? And so basically you tell the model here are the equations, here's the temperature and salinity that you start with, and then you press a button that says go. And the whole thing, you know, crunches, 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 and it comes up with basically what the model thinks uh, temperature, salinity, currents should be, you know, x x step in the future, if you will. And there's a bunch of other things that happen too. Um, but basically, the idea there is that it, it it helps guide the envelope of variability in different places, and that's really important for the ocean because we can't measure everywhere in the ocean. You know, even with all these ocean robots that I mentioned, there's, you know, the ocean is, is very much undersampled in the sense that there might be a ship that goes once every, at best, 10 years to some deep water place in the middle of the South Pacific. And so we really don't know, aside from like every 10 years, what the temperature might be changing, you know, how the temperature might be changing at that depth. And so it's very inaccessible. I mean, you know, to put it in full perspective, you know, to get a research vessel out there, uh, they, they cost about, I don't know, $30,000 a day, right? So, you know, 30 days of steaming just to get to some location, uh, you know, it adds up very, very quickly. And so that's why, you know, and, and, and then the robots themselves, they're, they're pretty expensive too. And, 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 and so there's, so it's, it's very difficult to cover the whole ocean. And so by, with the ocean models, they then provide an opportunity for, it's not, it's not the real observations, of course, but it's a really well-informed uh, idea for what might be happening there. And so then they're viewed as, as I mentioned, this sort of envelope of, of what could be happening. Um, and it helps understand. And so then, and then you can say, well, okay, I'll take this model and see, well, what, were, what, what could those currents be, right? And, and, and that can help you do all sorts of really cool stuff. Like you can track uh, like larvae moving through the ocean. You wouldn't have that velocity field from observations, but you do have it in the model, and so you can use that as a as a as a as a proxy, if you will. And so I can imagine that there is a real process of making these models, making observations, refining them, going back to the drawing board over and over again. So, oh yeah, where have you fit in in your work as to contributing to these models? Sure, sure. So my work has been primarily in in uh, looking at the output of the models and comparing that to observations. Uh, that's that's what I did as a PhD student, and then after that, I then uh, took on a role of making observations. So I've uh, 
uh, and then and I've not actually I've done a tiny bit of running of my own models, but but not I'm not at all that's not at all my specialty and expertise. There's there's folks who are far more expertise in that. Um, but I'm and I'm familiar with how they work because I've looked at the output of them, and that's important for understanding and using the output properly. And these are often big collaborative projects. Oh yeah, many many uh -huh. people and many many computers work on them all at once. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, so it, you, uh, modeling groups, there's, there's several modeling groups um, and, and folks are, it's, it's, it's great. Actually, the amount of collaboration that's happening in oceanography is, is really inspiring. Uh, and both amongst observationalists, right? Because you have, you know, it's really expensive to observe the ocean. So folks are ready to pool their data. They're ready to work together. But the same thing is observationalists are collaborating with modelers. Modelers are collaborating with each other. It's, yeah, so it's, it's very, uh, it's, collaboration is essential for keeping all this this running. That's really cool. So, and the one area of specialty that you kind of mentioned before our talk today was the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, also known as the AMOC. Yeah. Uh -huh. The cold blob, um, neither of which I have heard about in, in uh, any of my classes. So I'd love if you could talk a little bit about the understanding of these concepts today. Sure, sure. Well, the, the, over, the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation. So it's in the Atlantic Ocean. Meridional means north-south, and overturning means that the waters are are going. The warm surface waters are sinking into the deep cold waters, and they're doing an overturning. Um, and and so that uh, there's that's one of the largest scale current systems uh, on the planet. And there's a lot of a lot of a lot of climate science has been devoted to trying to understand its variability of this overturning circulation and its relationship to larger scale or uh, climate on, on the earth in the sense that, uh, you know, if it slows down, does that mean less heat is being transported up into higher latitudes? You know, how do, what is the ocean's contribution to heat transport relative to the atmosphere's contribution of heat transport? Um, so it, these are, is, yeah, these are the very, the very important questions in terms of what's moving around and then the the cold blob itself so that's 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 a more recent thing that we've just observed in the sense that over the last uh, few years it appears that there's a sort of an anomalously or unusually cold patch in the north atlantic and so folks are trying to figure out well why are why is this why is this happening um, and there's kind of two theories one of them is that the overturning circulation there's some indi indication that it's slowing down um, and could it be that less heat is being transported up into the north, the northern parts of the North Atlantic? So then if less heat is going there, those waters are cooling. Um, but it could also be potentially due to a change in, um, in, the, in the winds and the storm patterns that are happening uh, from, from year to year. So there could be sort of a consistent change over a couple of years that could be causing that. So as you know, there's, there's still, Still, folks are. This is at the cutting edge of research, uh, but it's interesting to see that it could potentially be related to larger scale circulation patterns. What kind of impact would this have if uh, the north, uh, the northern waters are actually becoming uh, cooler, or that the the heating is actually not, you know, uh -huh. lessening at this point? Sure, sure. Well, that that could have impacts on on the climate in in uh in the northern hemisphere um that could so it could for example cause uh, potentially it could cause uh 
uh, colder winters. Um, but you know the, the the exact mechanisms for this are very complicated, and that's actually beyond my exact specialty. Um, but the other things that could be potentially impacted by that are things like uh, the melting of sea ice, or I'm sorry, uh, well, melting of sea ice, but also the melting of, of, of uh, glaciers on Greenland in the sense that there's been some thought that warm waters going up to those glaciers are then causing those glaciers to, to the toe of the glacier to melt and then more is coming off. So there's some pretty big implications on the climate system. Uh, there's big implications for biology in the sense that if if temperatures are changing significantly in that area, then different species are going to be happier then there. Um, and it, and you know, you could end up with pretty significant shifts in, in the balance that, that's, that's already there. So it could be anything from individual fish to things like potential, like there's been some work on, on how uh, like small copepods, like these tiny little zooplankton floating around, they are actually not as happy in certain temperatures waters. And so they tend to, you know, they may be migrating around. Is, is this, is this concerning at all to you? Oh, well, yeah, yeah, it's very, it's, it's, I mean, it's, I mean, we're talking about, you know, huge changes in say livelihoods for fisheries, right? We're taking, talking about huge changes and uncertainties associated with, you know, every day, you know, like is our winters going to be different from what they were 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, and, but I, I, you know, the thing is, it's really important to keep this in the context of the other, there's a lots of other sources of variability. So being able to pin it down to one thing is super, super difficult. Like we're talking about a hugely complicated system. Um, and so we can try to point fingers at certain causes, but it, it may take a while before they can really be definitively, ah, this is, is here kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, the science is there that's, that things are changing and that we know. Yeah. Very so it, it will take a while to parse out these, these different mechanisms and that all contributes to um, an amazing body of scientific understanding. Mm -hmm. You've also done a lot of work on the ocean side of things related to policies through Project Drawdown is something that we mentioned. Um, sure, sure. I wouldn't say policy in the sense that I have, I have no idea how policy is made. My contribution with Project Drawdown was primarily one of, of looking at, at quantifying potential ocean solutions to, 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 uh, to reducing carbon. So Project Drawdown, the idea of Drawdown is drawing carbon dioxide down um, and thinking about it in a really positive way by saying, there's lots of potential solutions. Let's see how all these solutions add up. And a lot of them are existing solutions in the sense that it's not like some kind of technology that will be created later. It is, it is more like, well, right now we have solar panels. So yeah. to what extent could we deploy solar panels? And, and right now we know that, uh, I don't know, there's other solutions like say wind power or, or conservation agriculture. We know that these things do cert have certain, they, they reduce, either they reduce emissions or they actively sequester carbon. So for example, Ayana mentioned uh, coastal ecosystems that are really about great at storing carbon. Absolutely. So um, uh, for example, like mangroves and salt marshes and, and, and uh, seagrass systems, like they're, they're fabulous at storing carbon. And so if development comes in there or if they get disturbed in some other way, then there's then the potential for carbon to be re-emitted, right? They would have been hard won storage by natural processes are then re-emitted. And so the idea is like, well, let's protect them. Let's allow them to keep doing that work. Um, 
and 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 it's also important to quantify it. So what are their what are their impacts? In a way, if you think about there being multiple solutions, you need to think about well, how are they efficiently distributed? You can't put solar panels on top of uh, a salt marsh, right? I mean, you would they would cancel each other out in some way. Yeah, so um, so you can't double count solutions. So it's important to have a map and decide where these things can go. So I I first came across Project Project Drawdown's work back in my first year at Bowdoin when with the sustainability office, we did a, a kind of project in which we all read a little bit of the book and uh, and discussed it and made a few, uh, a few uh, communication pieces about it. But um, I haven't thought about it much in, in a couple of years. And I, I know that it, it's still going strong as, a, as a, a project to this day and still thinking about lots of climate solutions. As far as I remember, oceans are not particularly featured in Drawdown. There's a lot more focus on energy and transportation sector, uh-huh. and more terrestrial-based projects. So um, in, in your opinion, this might be a hot, a hot question to ask, but should oceans be featured in carbon solutions? Oh, sure. sure. Well, the, the reason they're not is, is, is there's, a, there's a couple of factors, but one of them is, is just the uncertainty of it. And, and, you know, we've just started exploring how to, how to, if you will, dive into the oceans. Um, and the, the, the cost, you know, it's really expensive to, to be able to develop systems that are truly robust and efficient all at the same time and well understood. So, um, so for example, I, I don't know what the exact current version is, but I do know that uh, coast, uh, protecting of coastal ecosystems was, was, was an important part that was featured in Drawdown. Um, and, I, I, and my understanding is at the time, there was also some interest in marine farming, which is something or, uh, that, that, that Ayana mentioned as well. Uh, in terms, so I guess, uh, you know, you might be thinking about like other ocean carbon solutions, like in particular, like say ocean iron fertilization, where the idea is let's dump a bunch of nutrients in the ocean, the phytoplankton go crazy, they create a bunch of carbon, it all sinks to the bottom and we're done. Right. And, and the reality is that it, it's, it's nowhere near such a simple story because there's, there's downstream impacts on, on the, eco- you have to think about, well, what is that, act- what is that ecosystem experiencing when that, when, that, when that photosynthetic party happens? But, but also you have to think about, well, it's gonna fall into the sea floor stuff is going to eat that. It's not just going to be like under the rug. So that means if it gets eaten, that means oxygen is going to be drawn down. And that means that we then have the potential for, for acidic and oxic waters at depth. Um, that also means that the, the photosynthetic party at the surface is going to eat up all the nutrients. So if ecosystems downstream depend on those nutrients, they're going to be, they're going to be nutrient uh, depleted. So there's, it's, it's, you know, this is a, it's, it's, some a lot of these things, other ideas that have been come up that have been presented are, you know, are, are worth thinking about, um, but they need to be thought about very carefully. And so, one of the key things about drawdown is that the idea is that this is something that we're we're really confident works, as opposed to something that is, yeah, let's explore it and look at it, but that's still kind of uh, in the scientific hypothesis testing mode. That seems like a very important distinction to make. That's sound reasoning on that. And thank you. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, because if you want to add up solutions, right, and you want to say, we can do this with the solutions that we already know, then we need to use solutions that we already know and have numbers that we can depend on when we add them all up. Um, and 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 that's, that's I think that's why 
that's my understanding of, you know, I haven't put out uh, the, the newest version, but I haven't been associated with that part yet, but, but that's my understanding of why the oceans are, are, are not like front and center. It's because it's just, it's so hard to quantify some of these things. And, and some of these things we, we, don't, we don't know about, or some of them may, may not, may be discussed a lot, but they may not be a good idea if we look at the, at the in, impacts. Yeah, it seems like just from this entire conversation, um, I think uh, a point that just keeps getting emphasized is how, how much information there is that out there that we still don't know yet. Um, and how hard it is to quantify it and to really get to that information. Um, but I think it's, uh, and yet you still continue to study, even though like it is so complex. And for that, I give you props. And I'm sure, uh, <laughs> I'm sure all of the EOS students are also uh, having a great time exploring all of these really big questions. Yeah. Well, um, I, don't so want, I don't want you to feel that like there's too much uncertainty to move. I mean, there's some things that we can be very certain about um, in terms of, you know, there being massive changes due to climate change. Um, and in terms of certain things we know will be, you know, really good, powerful solutions. And we need to think about how to stitch them all together. So, uh, but I, you know, I just want to emphasize that, that the ones that aren't necessarily featured are ones that, 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 that aren't, that aren't, 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 you know, there's just not enough underpinning them to be confident in moving forward with them. Right. And it, it does seem like no coincidence to me that most of the solutions featured are coastal ones. And that's exactly where Dr. Johnson works on in her um, urban ocean lab, on her, <laughs> her urban ocean lab. The fact that we are able to interact so closely with these environments makes them really special, very valuable going forward, I would posit. Well, and also think about the logistical requirements and the fuel requirements associated with getting out to the deep ocean. Um, I mean, you need larger and larger vessels, more and more fuel to, to run them. I mean, okay, so we can have algae-based fuel for the engines or something like that, which, okay, but the, the getting, I don't, I don't know of a good, I think the, the price for getting algae-based biofuel is still way above traditional diesel fuel. So, you know, the, the yeah, it's, it's, it makes sense to stay closer to shore in terms of, of, of knowns, yeah. I want to ask uh, one question, which is that, um, even though there's there are all of these unknowns, and even though it's hard to get to all of this information sometimes, um, you still continue to to study EOS, and um, it seems like you're so fascinated by this. So I'm curious, what gives you hope, and what about this subject um, makes you so excited to get up and you know teach the subject and um, yeah get involved in all of these studies? Oh sure, sure. Well, I see a lot. There's a lot more interest over over time, and and the interest has 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 shifted uh, toward toward like uh, I guess like a real feeling of like I'm involved, and 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 the ocean is is related to me as opposed to kind of like oh yeah the big big salty water over there, um, and and uh, yeah so I that's just you know a very subjective feeling of like but and also you know the fact that I'm teaching students in oceanography and so they must be interested in oceanography. And so they're, oh, okay, the, the, you know, that's not necessarily, you know, uh, putting my finger on the pulse of the whole, uh, the whole, the whole, the whole country, I suppose. But at the same time, it's just, I don't know, I just feel like there's, there's real genuine interest and awareness that there, that this plays a huge role. And, and so I, I that, that's, yes, yes, it does play a huge role. And let's, let's talk mm -hmm. about why. Yeah. Yes. <laughs>
Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you. So we're gonna we can ask the last question that we ask every one of our guests on this podcast, and that question is, what does sustainability mean to you? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, I'm glad that you put it on there. You know, it's interesting talking about this in a post, you know, not post, in a in the middle of COVID kind of world, in the sense that, you know, sustainability, like you know, sustaining effort, our you know, personal effort amidst you know a lot, just a lot of changes and other things. And so it's really, it's, I've been kind of thinking about the sustainability as something that is about the the whole the whole system, and not just and not just about environmental sustainability, but, but also like social sustainability, like th- things that are established and, and, and ways, of, ways of operating within systems need to be sustainable. And, and, if, and if, a total, if, if, if one part of the system is ignoring the environmental aspect of it, then the other parts of the system are gonna grind to a halt potentially. Um, and so it's, it's very much a sort of this, it's a multifaceted thing where different parts of the system need to be interacting with each other and working with each other in order f- for things to be really sustainable in the sense that like it's it's sustainable for the environment it's sustainable for society it's sustainable for uh i guess what would be the other major i mean those are i guess would be the two major ones that i guess would i would think of in terms of sustainability it's a lot uh, like project down down uh drawdown how you have all these different uh different fields of study working together to kind of move toward that common goal. And that's kind of yeah, absolutely. what you're talking, the, uh, the dynamic that you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. So it's like a way of thinking and a way of analyzing something and saying, okay, if I'm going to do X, let's, let's make certain that all of these different impacts are in, you know, that they relate to each other, that they are, that they're, they're, they're with each other and, and not so much, and, and, you know, it, it's, it can't be acceptable if it's not working with the other parts of its surrounding or if it's at odds with. Yeah, thank you so much for speaking with us today. It was so enlightening. Um, yeah, you did great. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Sure. Well, that's, that was a lot of fun. I really appreciate, uh, appreciate your interest. And uh, yeah, thank you. Over the course of the spring 2021 semester, Green Tea will be sharing stories from students, staff, and community members around Bowdoin College. Stay tuned for more episodes, and thanks for listening.